It's really about rethinking our relationship with clients and showing them something different. And they'll either go for it or they won't. But when they're done, you've really got them thinking about uh, what's just been put to them. Always. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby. And my very special guest today is Stephen Street. Since 2015, Stephen has been the CEO of Cubed Talent Management, and that is incorporating Cubed Recruitment, Indigo Healthcare Recruitment, and Cubed Academy. According to Stephen's LinkedIn profile, this represents an entirely new approach to strategic talent management for the engineering, FMCG, electronics, and manufacturing and supply chain sectors. Stephen started his recruiting career over 25 years ago, And he started his own business called Relay Recruiting in 1996, which he subsequently sold to Staff Force in 2011. Stephen, welcome. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Morning, Mark. So you were referred to me by Darren Ledger at iIntro. So thanks to Darren for introducing us. Uh, And I actually interviewed the iIntro chairman, Plamen Ivanov. That's episode 43 for people who want to revisit that, uh, that conversation. How do you know the guys at iIntro? Uh, yeah, so uh, Pam and I, uh, our paths uh, crossed many years ago, probably 25, maybe even 30 years ago. Uh, Pamman was not in recruitment at the time. Uh, I had just moved into recruitment. And uh, and then I think the next time I saw him, uh, I think he was up at the Goals Club. Uh, and uh, it was at that point I realized he was involved with Grass Green. I did a little bit of work with them. So after selling Relay, um, I did two and a half, three years of consulting, um, and Grass Greener were one of my clients. I had a great relationship with Plum and Paul. Uh, did some good stuff together. I learned a lot from them. In fact, they could be sending me an invoice rather than the other way around. So it was a good relationship, <laughs> uh, and I think philosophically we're very aligned in and outside of you know our, our jobs and, and our work. Absolutely. Plowman's a great guy and quite a character. It's funny you say about, you know, them, you paying them for the consulting work you did with them. I I think that's the nature of coaching. I, and consulting, I learn from every client I work with. And so although, you know, clients are paying me to help them, it's really is a two-way, a two-way, you know, discovery process. So, um, would you like, I'd love to talk about like you selling your business and then also the really innovative things you're doing with Cubed uh, Talent Management. But before we get into that, can we just go right back to the beginning and would you like tell us your story? Because I believe you came from quite humble beginnings and, and in, in Yorkshire. Uh, how did you come to be where you are today? So I, I, I think being dragged up is a sort of uh, an English, maybe a northern colloquialism. Uh, and you remember the game Top Trumps, where you'd have like yeah. cards with data on them and statistics. So the running joke is um, if, if there was a Top Trumps game of being sort of dragged up, uh, humble beginnings, typically amongst my peer group, uh, they used to say, Steve, get your top trumps out and tell us that story again. So it was fairly tricky early days, but it's not a misery memoir. You kind of look back and go, you know what? I learned a lot and that shaped me and that informed me and that, that you know, that kind of gave me my worldview. So it was a bit rough 
initially, but, you know, I wasn't my own. I was, I think it was fairly typical from where I was brought up. So I brought up in, um, uh, in inner city Bradford, uh, born in 1963, brought up by a single mum. Uh, and uh, I woke up on Christmas Eve on my, still 15 at the time, to be told my mum had died. I wasn't aware she was ill. What you learn, you know, when you look back is that's kind of how things were done. You didn't want to worry anybody, didn't want to make a fuss. You kind of just took one day at a time. Uh, so, um, but I didn't realize at the time that was going to be um, life changing, kind of just deal with it and didn't have this sort of emotional or psychological maturity to process it, just got on with it. So, comfortably numb, uh, you, you might say, about the whole thing. I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, so then fast forward, ended up in, you know, a bed sit with some mates in a flat, enjoyed it, enjoyed it, really enjoyed it. I didn't think, you know, I was hard done to or I was deprived or anything really, just kind of got on with it and enjoyed it. Um, and then um, had a few jobs. Um, I was on the student's union for a few years. I was social facilities officer. Then I became um, uh, the social officer. So I was booking bands buying beer, running a couple of bars. And that's, I think, when I realized there was a degree of entrepreneurialism in there. And I suppose where that came from was at my mum's funeral, there was this big sort of cathartic, what well, we need to tell you a little bit more about your upbringing. So it turns out my dad was an illiterate Irish guy who came over in the 50s, ended up running a pub. My mum worked for him. The rest is history. Um, so I was quite proud of that. You know, I was never embarrassed about that. I kind of wore it as a bit of a badge of honour. Quite liked it. Um, I thought it was different. Uh, anyway, so so there's there's clearly a bit of that kind of rub off in terms of um, making money, running a business, um, promoting the business, doing some good stuff. Um, then I worked in. I was a, an estate agent for enough for about three and a half years, and I enjoyed that. The interaction with with, with customers, getting out there, putting the houses on, getting them sold, negotiating, transacting the whole piece. So the recruitment um, gateway, I suppose, is like a lot of people in recruitment, very few people in recruitment you know, contrive to be in recruitment where there was a clear career pathway or an intent or a qualification or, do you know what I mean? It was kind of people fall into it. And pretty much everybody I've ever met has fallen into, but no one's really sort of contrived um, to get into recruitment. But I went to, I was out of work, and I went to register with a company called LinkUp back in the day, early 1993. Uh, ostensibly for whatever job they had, I was happy. It was an industrial recruitment company. So, you know, have you got a job? I need an income. Got kids. All the rest of it, let's go. And when I got home, they rang me and said, can you come back in? I'd like to talk to you about, a couple of things. I went back in. I thought they had a job for me. They said, oh, we think you'd be good in recruitment. I said, I don't even know what it is. What do you do? So they explained what they did. I went, right, okay. Well, I've never heard of it before. But, um, right, well, if you think, I'm, you think I can do it, let's give it a go. So I, uh, I went in on a fairly big intake of people. I remember being in a boardroom with a load of people all dressed in suits and thinking uh, these people kind of know a lot more about this than I do. Uh, and fast forward about three months, I think there were three or four of us left. So the attrition was massive. I think it was about 25, 30 people on the intake. There wow. were four of us left. Oh, it was brutal, brutal. But I was desperate. It was like a heady combination of I was desperate, needed the job and needed the income. I didn't want to fail. 
Uh, and I surprised myself, I suppose, on a daily basis. That was sort of still in the game. Um, so that was link up. Uh, and uh, I left for various reasons. Ended up at Pertemps. Uh, about two years with Pertemps. Great company. A lot of time for them. Taught me a lot. In fact, had I not gone on to set up Relay with a colleague, I can imagine that I'd probably have invested the rest of my career in Pertemps. Good company. Ticked all the Great boxes business, for me. Yeah. yeah. So that was it, really. No. Wow. Nothing unique about that, I don't think. Well, I I beg to differ, Stephen, but, um, you know, it's it's a it's an amazing uh, story for sure. Let's just dig into the early success in recruiting, which you said you know you're surprised on a daily basis to have to still be there. Um, what was the difference, do you think, between the people that fell away they 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 couldn't you know couldn't make it versus you? I know you said it was part desperation you needed the job you needed the income but there must be more to it than that i think um going back to link up they invested heavily in us you know training and at a time when legislation was at best light touch it was non-existent there was no minimum wage no working time uh no agency worker regulations nothing no good work plan nothing yeah uh you know in the days of a pound an hour and all that nonsense but I think Larry Gould, who owned and ran the business, was very ethical. The bar was high from the get-go, even though the market didn't really require the bar to be that high. I don't want to be disparaging about an industry that's been very good to me, but I always thought historically the barrier of entry into recruitment was too low, too mm -hmm. low. Uh, and I think when you consider the complexity of what we do, the value of the account, the reputations at stake, and... Um, I, 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 I feel that that was a real anomaly, but LinkUp spotted that. So you were basically hot housed in terms of training, a lot of pressure to learn and know everything from legislation to compliance, to how to sell, to how to account manage, plus some of the early technology. It was the best possible place for me, best possible place. So I think those foundations and those fundamentals were set very early on. I've got high standards as an individual, and one of my many guiding principles, because we've all got them, haven't we? But one of my guiding principles, what I recognized very early on, was not to be function to function, i.e. recruiter to hirer, supplier to customer, nor be brand to brand, i.e. link up to whoever it might be, the client company, but for it to be person to person, Steve to Mark, Steve to whoever it might be from the get-go because when you strip away the person's function and the purpose's position and the nature of the relationship at the core of all of that universally is a person where in all likelihood you have shared values worldview commonality kids family where you live what you do what you enjoy what you think what you believe all of that so i always had a, a you know a a knack of getting quite close to people quickly, but again, very authentically. And a lot of people who are in my sort of personal friendship group now I've known for 20, 25 years.
And a lot of them start. In fact, my business partner started off as a customer. So my business partner is Rob Fleming. He was one of the founding directors of Pace Micro, very big success story in consumer electronics. He was a customer, then he was a client, then we got close, and then we got closer, and he became unwittingly a mentor to me. So uh, very early on, I recognized that I've got limitations. There's lots of things I don't know, lots of things I don't understand. So I sort of asked certain people, tip, usually and typically clients, if they're prepared to mentor me informally and enter into a sort of informal joint venture to inform my own thinking, my own strategy, help me develop innovations in our service, what we do, how we do it, why we do it. And the way I used to frame it, Mark, not talking too much, am I? Nope. Way, this is great stuff. The way I used to frame it is, and I still do, Mark, and anybody can have this because it's it absolutely, you know, it, it works. They say to clients, and I lean in conspiratorially and say, look, imagine this for a minute. You know, imagine this for me. Imagine that we, the three people around the table, so this could be operations manager, an owner manager, head of HR. Imagine that the four of us created our own agency. And that agency only existed to service the needs of this organization over the life of its strategic um, vision. Do you believe we would put together a more informed, a more effective and a more appropriate strategy than a load of strangers who currently sit outside of this organization? What's the answer? Yes. Now, the reason most people don't do that is they don't have the political will. They often don't have the headspace, the expertise, but they've never been invited to even consider it. So that's how I frame all of my relationships with clients from the get-go. And, and I don't see the risk of, but they might take it in the house. You go, I don't see that as a risk. It's a bit like jujitsu. What I see as a sort of a risk is to bring that on. Yes, let's take it in house, but let's take it in that house in the form of a joint venture, in the form of a joint enterprise where a combination of what you know and can do and what I know and can do together equals more than the sum of our parts. Show me a better way of doing it than that. That's that's kind of how what I did from the get-go, just intuitively, and still do. That is quite genius, Steve. Uh, um, I would love to find out more about this philosophy of joint venturing with your clients, whether that is formally or, or informally. And I love the idea of cultivating your clients as mentors as well. It's, uh, I've cultivated mentors throughout my career. And it's, I, I, I think one of the keys to my own success is, I mean, of course, I've hired coaches, which has been great. Uh, I've learned from every client, as we said earlier. So you learn you know, from your, your customers, but also seeking out and cultivating mentors, I think really can accelerate your, your own development. It's interesting because I interviewed uh, a woman called Natasha Makajani, uh, that's episode number 30, and her, she's excellent at opening relationships at the sea level and winning big accounts, even though she's a small boutique uh, business owner. And Part of her strategy is similar to what you've just described, where she's approaching senior leaders who she she's researched and she admires, and she she pursues them in a very um, intelligent way. It's not a scattergun approach. She's going after people who she would like to learn from and get to know, and asks them for help. Asks if she can meet them for lunch or a coffee, and 
you know, some of them are now uh, non-exec directors for her recruitment business, and they started out as, uh, as, as clients. So I think there's something to that. And I love your, uh, I'm just recapping here what I've, what I've taken from the first thing you've said, Stephen, which is cult- developing that relationship on a person-to-person level rather than just a business-to-business level. Um, I'm, I'm not afraid to speak to anybody. I don't really respect job titles. Um, I think human beings by being, by virtue of us being born on this planet, we have equal value and everyone has the same needs. We all have worries. We all have, you know, things we're stressed about. We all have goals, desires, dreams, families. We need to eat, sleep, and, you know, all the, all the basic human functions are the same. So if we can remove the artifice of job titles and, you know, fancy offices and so on and, and get down to it, then we're, we can put ourselves on the same level really as the, the clients we're interacting with. I think going um, back to that, um, yeah. you know, that approach, which is, it, you could argue it's tactical because what you're, what you're doing is disrupting the sort of orthodox conventional thinking and dynamics that typically exist. But it's, uh, you're right in what you're saying there. It's about, you know, being comfortable in your own skin as a human being and a, as an individual and as an equal. Uh, and, uh, and, and that kind of trumps everything. And that's really where people, in terms of alignment, connectedness, um, common ground, that's where that, that's very quickly sort of established and it's meaningful. But often I say to a client, if we look at, if we take a period of time, let's say just two years, I say, so who are you, who are you, who, which accounts do you use? And they go, oh, well, we use KPMG. All right, okay. So who does your auditing? Oh, yeah, PwC. All right, so who does your facilities management? All right, okay. So these are really long-standing relationships. And they go, yeah, yeah. And I can see that they're, you know, they're strategic partnerships. I understand that. How many agencies have you used across the group in the same time period? Well, many, many, many. Well, why is that? Well, we're all crap. No, no, no. The common denominator is you. (laughs) Yeah. And actually, they're complicit because they allow themselves to be bullied and cowed into doing the same thing all over again, probably for a lower fee or charge. So what the other thing I say to clients at the outset is, At the beginning of this relationship, we're going to make a conscious decision. And I'm thinking of somebody in particular who considers, let's call Mark, no pushover. You know, he was a a, a big M&E client of ours. Uh, Let's just get rid of that. A big M&E client of ours. And I said, look, Mark, we're going to enter into, and he's very cynical about agencies. And I think he was on his 18th agency in the last three (laughs) years. You go, okay, well, you're part of the problem, Mark, like it or not. So we're either going to be one of two things. We're either going to be stakeholders in our shared success or we're going to be complicit in our inevitable failure based on what <laughs> we do next. And if you're going to ask me to do what everybody else has done for the same or lesser fee, you need to find somebody else. It's time to listen. Now, what I don't do is sell concepts, which is or, 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 or sell hypothetically. I frame everything and contextualize everything within a case study. This is a real organization, credible organization in the same sector with similar issues. This was the before, and here's the hard data, and this is the after, and the hard supporting data, irrefutable data, and this is the how. This is how we took them from where they were 
to where they are now. Now, I didn't do that to them. We did it together because they realized it was time now to collaborate authentically and correctly from the get-go. Not call it a partnership, but betray everything about that in their behavior and their interaction by kicking down. Yeah, but they genuinely entered into and embraced a true collaboration. Now, you only get that really when you work at the top of organizations where the power and the influence is, and people generally are more comfortable in their own skin and appreciate this kind of conversation. That's what I found from my own experience. That is beautiful. I love how you just described that. And the way that you're framing the conversation, uh, it's very easy to, this word partnership is one, and I've done it myself, is use the word, but what does that really mean? You know, it's easy to use the word, but then betray that with your behavior on, on both both sides, as you've, as you've just said. Um, and I agree that what you're suggesting as amazing and beautiful as that sounds is only going to work if you do have the ear of the most senior people in that so organization, yeah, which. which is in itself, I mean, that can be a, a, a challenge. Can we just discuss that briefly? Like, um, how do you get to that point? Because sometimes you like, cause you can either work your way up, which means working in a non-ideal way for a time period until you get some traction. And then you can get to that person who, who then allows you, you know, but then by then you've already been working. They're used to you working in a certain way and they're inclined to not, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. They're, they're saying, well, but Mark, you're, you're, delivering good people to us in the old way. So why would we change it? And I kind of feel like I don't like that philosophy of, well, we'll go in as a one of many suppliers and then we'll, you know, do some good work and then we'll get exclusive and then we'll get you to the next stage because I feel like you're already um, de-positioning yourself. I would prefer from the get-go to enter into the relationship and just say, look, as you've just described, um, you've been through 18 different agencies. Um, let's not repeat the same, you know, mistakes that have taken you to this point. Let's try something new. But how do you get the ear of this, of the senior stakeholders? I think it goes back to fundamentals, marks. So right at the very beginning, you get, you know, the training is about let's identify the stakeholder groups within an organization. You've got the end user, you've got people with influence, you've got people who facilitate, and you've got people with authority, the decision and decision-making powers. And I think you have to look at each, each scenario and opportunity on a case-by-case -case basis and put together a mini strategy for it. So we have these tactical approach plans. And the first thing is to know who's who. Then understand what their agenda is and what's important to them. And not to disrespect anybody within that organization. And if that means going in, you know, on the ground floor and establishing those relationships on our merit, because, and, 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 and this has to be on our merit, um, those people will refer up. And those people, and, and, and also to make sure that we're doing our bit to, you know, shine the spotlight on those individuals who've been enlightened enough and open-minded enough and receptive enough to listen to new and better ways of doing things and for them to refer that up 
and then again and again and again. Or you you can sometimes go in in at the top, but of course, what happens as you sort of move through your career? The people who are maybe working on the short floor have moved into middle management. Middle management have moved into executive. Executives have moved into you know their business owners or their part of C suite, whatever. Um, so yes. I think that's important to be able to stay. You know, staying in the game is important because your peer group you tend to kind of rise with the tide as long as you've maintained those relationships and you've not been a fair weather friend and. You know, I, you know, I know. You know, other recruiters can be quite transactional. It's just about getting that person placed, getting that fee, and moving on. And I think recruiters perhaps might want to think about: well, if I've been in recruitment ten years, what's the quality of my professional network? Without overstating the quality of my relationship with clients, so how many are genuinely advocating for me? How many? Can I sort of refer a prospective client to who would sing my praises and would reassure that person about my capabilities, performance, and contribution to what they're trying to do? How many would only ever use me exclusively, and wherever they go, I'm their first call or one of the? And if 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 you've not built up that kind of network after a couple of years, two, three, four, five years, then I would say your relationship is way too transactional, and it's like starting again. Every single time, which is exhausting. So that is about speed. That is about price, and that is about look, rather than goodwill and reputation, personal brand, being somebody to do good business with. But also, when you're not actively doing business, is to keep checking in with those people authentically. And, and, and building that goodwill and nurturing those relationships and letting them know you're there because you're there, not because there's a fee or a project, you know, up for grabs. Something very uncomfortable about that for me. Yes, I love it. That's a great, a great answer. And doing this sort of thing, podcasting, for example, is a great way of building relationships with senior individuals. So as you say, you can, if you do a great job of building real relationships instead of operating transactionally, you can, as as you grow and mature, your peer group also is rising through the ranks. But in some cases, for example, I had a client, you talked about case studies. So the case study I'm going to give you is a young woman called Lauren Stibing, who's hopefully listening to this or will listen to it when it when it goes live. Um, and she was very early in her career, didn't have that network of senior, you know, stakeholders, um, wanted to win retained search assignments with big blue chip companies. And... Um, who these companies all have PSLs and, you know, approved vendors and, you know, headhunters that they already have relationships with and so on. And I suggested she do a podcast and invite C and VP level contacts on her show as a way of just getting to know people. And she has done that. It's been extremely successful for her. She's done about 60 or so episodes now, and that's opened many, many doors for her. So I think there are can be shortcuts if you're strategic about how you do things. But in the long run, it does come down to the, you know, having the conversation is one thing, but then building relationship is, is, uh, is another thing. 
Since you're listening to this podcast, it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth and business improvement. That's something we have in common. I really enjoy listening to podcasts, reading, and listening to business books, watching TED Talks. But by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999, 2000, when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and he helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then, I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years, and it's made a massive difference to my own personal and business success. In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I loved recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. Let me ask you this. I, do you know when I first approached you about doing this interview, I thought what I was going to want to talk to you about is building and selling a company. But um, maybe we can we can come back to that on another occasion because I wanted to stay with this idea of partnering with your clients. I think is really fascinating, and I'm I have not come across really anyone else who's who's doing this. I know you've written to me before about the importance of innovation recruitment, and by innovation we're not just talking about technology or process, but you said there's a need to radically reposition the sector, challenge perceptions and truisms about the industry within the market by collaborating and forging strategic alliances with clients and maybe even other recruiters to unlock the hidden value. Could you elaborate on that? Like what you're doing at, um, you know, Cubed Talent Management in that respect, I'd be really interested to, to learn more. Um, I, th- I think it's a combination of recruitment generally, I think, but it's open for, you know, dispute or debate. It's quite tribal. Um, you know, it's quite it's quite tribal and and, and, and polarizing. Uh, well, as a sector, you know, you know, if the value is 35, 36 billion to the UK economy, you know, it's very it's very fragmented. There's the kind of big players, uh, and then a really long tail of sort of SMEs, owner managed and micros, and you know, one one person bounce. Um, and, and, and I don't know whether that's a kind of paranoia, a lack of sort of maturity generally. And I don't mean maturity of individual, but just general, generally a need for the sector to mature. And um, there's a lot of cannibalization and a lot of damage done as, as we all go at, you know, an opportunity. It could, be an, it could be an account. It could be a job. It could be a project. We all go at that and kind of, kind of tear it to pieces between ourselves. Yeah, and the, and the poor client and the candidates are somewhere in that melee. Uh, that just strikes me as being a bit undignified and a bit unprofessional and really a bit self-centered, collectively self-centered, if that's not a contradiction in terms, um, where we go, well, let's position, let's put the client and the candidate, let's remind ourselves of the most important people in the equation. So the first thing we need to do is treat them with respect and dignity and think, get in their shoes and try and feel, feel what it's like to be on the receiving end of this experience. And instead of seeing every competitor as the enemy, 
let's have a look at perhaps where that competitor plus us plus a really good strategy and an open-minded and collaborative client could really see everything off. Basically, that's it. It, it, You're really going to start to kind of negate and mitigate all the inevitable risks. So I I think about, I I kind of run the movie forward, Mark, and think, well, what about if the client sort of cottons onto the idea that their perception is this is money for all rope, it's a necessary evil, it's not a particularly nice experience, and a lot of value, a lot of cash is going out of the organisation. So I sit with the organise with the individual and say, well, look, what was your agency spend on perms last year? This is a real-life situation. 850 grand, that's a stack of money. No wonder you're being asked whether you're getting value for money. No wonder you're toying with the idea of perhaps doing it differently. You're not quite sure how, you, how you're going to do it differently. Let me show you how you might do it differently. What you might do is you might decide to take it in-house. But let me explain you know, what some of the pitfalls are. Conceptually, it's a great idea. But ex- in execution, there's quite a lot of downside. Because what you're saying to me is you're going to recruit somebody from commercial recruitment, you know, basically out there, hard recruitment, in-house uh, and it'll be really easy for them it won't be any easier for them because um, they're still competing in a very dynamic a very competitive and quite aggressive marketplace but they're now on a salary yeah with no commission and no bonus so you know i don't want to be disparaging or disrespectful to people who go in-house but why would you go in-house on 35 40 grand when you can sit outside and be as good as you claim to be on twice three times four times that and have all the sort of, you know, the blend of businesses that are out there. So let me show you another way. So what we could do, Pat, is give you the platform, the technology, the resource, the capability and the tools out of the box to do this. Yeah, to effectively bring your recruitment capability in-house. But what we're going to do, we're still going to post that £850,000 as an internal sale. So we're still going to show that but it's gonna be managed by the internal team. So you're gonna have a a recruiter, and that's gonna be a member of my team. You're gonna have a resourcer, and that's gonna be a member of uh, my team. But we're gonna dial Cubed down. So we're gonna stop talking about Cubed and the brand, and Cubed has been the identity, and we're gonna dial your brand up. Yeah, so we're gonna give it, we're gonna badge everything up, everything, you know, up in your name, because that's really what we need to be putting out there. You're losing the opportunity to raise your own profile, your own brand as a destination employer by by allowing agencies to piggyback on your brand. Let's turn them down and turn them off. So that's what we're going to do out of the box. We're going to give you uh, all the training plans, all the best practice, all the process, everything to do this from scratch. This is where it gets interesting. So we're going to use a gain share model. So we're still going to post these sales up here. We're going to agree that there's going to be some capital investment for technology, uh, subscriptions, LinkedIn, CRM, you name it, applicant tracking software. There's your cap, there's your capex, but you can see it. You can't see it at the minute. And there's your operating expenditure. That's what it's actually going to cost to run it on a daily basis. The team, everything. What drops out of the bottom is £630,000 which previously was going out the organization and into the coffers of all of these agencies, none of which, none of which are strategically aligned with you. They're aligned with themselves as individuals. 
They're not aligned around your vision, your mission, and how you're going to get there. We are £630,000. Year one, we're going to rebate 25% of that back to you. So you get all of these benefits. You get exclusivity over the candidate because at the minute, these candidates are applying to all of these agencies. You get no visibility. You've got no control. You don't know whether you're getting the best candidate. You've got no control over the narrative. You've got no control over what's been said and done to these candidates in your name. You bring all of that in-house, you get all of that agency, you get that control, you control the narrative, you have visibility over the candidates, and you have control and the influence over the candidate journey and experience. And particularly in organizations where your product or service is B2C, these people, particularly the ones that are unsuccessful, you want to make sure that they remain loyal to the brand. Yeah, they've had a great experience. You don't switch them off your product and service because you've not given them a correct experience as an applicant who applied in good faith. So they're, they're all the reasons I'm going to give you for to, to do this. Now, often the companies say, we don't have the political will. We don't have a mandate from the board. It's just too much for us right now. However, we want to do something like that with you. That's kind of how it goes with pretty much everybody. And for smaller organizations that say, well, we don't spend anything like that. Well, why don't we create a strategic alliance? Because you plus that other SME plus that other SME plus that other SME, this will work. And you can share this capability as a hub and have all the benefits that I've just out laid out for you. And um, that's what I mean about disrupting how we do things. It's really nothing about the technology. It's really nothing about the fundamentals of recruitment. It's really about rethinking our relationship with clients and showing them something different. And they'll either go for it or they won't. But when they don't, you've really got them thinking about uh, what's just been put to them, always. Which paves the way or creates a platform then to have a more traditional or conventional conversation about what happens next. So it's a win-win for me. I, what I love about that is, I mean, it's, a, it's such a cool concept, but as you say, it's a win-win because if they say yes, then great. If they say no or not yet. Yeah, not yet. Already, already you've established that you are genuinely different to the other suppliers they're talking to and they, you know, innovative in your thinking and collaborative in your approach, which can only be a good thing for the foundations of the relationship, right? Yeah. And it also keeps the door open to revisit that conversation um, at, a, at a later stage, which is, uh, which is fantastic. Um, can I just really try and understand this model a little better? Is by the way, is this just one example of several that you've tried, or is this kind of yeah, more yeah? I mean, over the formula? years, uh, before it became a thing, Mark. Before it became something that we can sort of present and show the mechanics, the strategy, how it's implemented, you know, how it's delivered and executed. Um, that was kind of the approach I sort of intuitively took anyway which was, um, look, I've been trained and I've got some information, plus I've got a, you know, a, a, a good appetite for more information and knowledge. Because I think, again, coming back to um, the complexity, uh, the risk, um, you know, you're handling people's individual sort of brands and reputations, but you're also looking after the organization's brand and reputation. 
You know, you're an ambassador for it in what you do. And therefore, uh, I think you have to think carefully about whether you've got the level of expertise and knowledge to add some real value, you know, not just be winging it. So I think historically it was about BD, it was about sales, it was about, you know, getting out there, converting, winning the business. But I think as the market's matured and it's become more complex, I think there's a lot of cynicism around the nature of recruitment and what recruiters do. So I always imagine that the client or the candidate has had a suboptimal experience with a recruiter. My first objective is uh, to demonstrate to that person that it's going to be different and it's going to be better from, from the, from the, from the get go. Yes. Um, so, so, so for me, I, I, I think I can feel and sense that there's a shift in mood and sentiment. And I think clients are, are looking for something different, are looking for something better. They're just not quite sure what it is. So they yeah. default to, well, we'll just do it ourselves rather than explore doing it as a joint venture, as a joint enterprise at whatever level, uh, because I'm not sure it's been tabled because I think the sector sees in-house as a risk and a threat rather than an opportunity. Mm, really interesting. Now, just so that I'm clear in my mind, what is the main difference between what you're proposing versus, say, an RPO model, which... You know, that's that's been prevalent for well, a number I, of years. I call now. RPOs. There's a middleman, middleman. There's two middlemen. <laughs> okay. So there's more dilution. The, it's it's less, you know, and, and, and often what's driving that is just about price. Because the yeah. way, you know, it's all about price. And, you know, so if really you can ask me how much it's going to cost, if that's one of the first things off your lips, then we're probably not, you know, this is not going to be the relationship we're lo looking for. I'm asking for you to invest responsibly. Uh, you know, the old cliches and adages about you, you buy cheap, you buy twice and all it. But again, I think you're going to be talking to the right person and you're going to frame the proposition and you've got to evidence the proposition by pointing to other organisations who were, were once where they are, who are now in a better place. And, and how that thing sort of evolves over time. It's not for everybody, as I say, but it is a concept that I talk about a lot. It's a reality for us as a business. And I, and I think there's that the, the market is very receptive to these ideas as long as they're properly articulated. Yes. Wow. Um, um, I love this joint venture strategy or business model um i mean do you have a name for this or like this this approach and 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 how does it actually work in practice yeah so the way we set up we've got our conventional sort of cube core over here so temps and perms high street traditional recruitment we've got our indigo healthcare over here which is sort of only sort of nh framework and off framework which is international doctors We've got on-site managed services to the side of that, which is where we're embedded, usually sort of volume, multi-site complex. And then we have a standalone business unit uh, that we call strategic partnerships. And if you unpack that, there's three levels. So, And it, it generally starts with, um, okay, so let's transact with you as we typically would. 
but let's start to preemptively build a lot of this additional value in from the get-go in a give to get so let's almost project ourselves into a situation and a scenario where we are in-house but I, and, and in terms of the the collateral so the resource we use uh, to kind of get this story told we basically explain look um, there's this sort of con contingency outside in but again this is this sort of thought experiment Let's imagine that you add your own sort of entity in-house. Let me explain the benefits of doing that. And, you know, I don't want to sort of repeat myself, but just going over, you have exclusivity over the candidates. You will have more candidates because actually most candidates would prefer to apply for a job direct and not be handled via an agency stroke middleman. It validates it so more people apply and therefore you've got access to kind of more choice options and quality. Then I talk about the numbers and I talk about the synergies and the economies of scale. Um, so, uh, yeah, it is a standalone division. We call it strategic partnerships. On a very low level, we, we basically call those projects special projects. So they are different. We add more value in from the get-go around complex, uh, not complex, for, um, technology, process, applicant assessment. We're a Thomas International uh, license center, so we do human job analysis and PPA. So this is, and we measure things like time to fill, right first time, candidate fit, the quality of the shortlist and retention. So we look at the metrics. So I think once we've proved that this methodology, technology and strategy adds immediate value and ongoing value, we then move to level two, uh, where we're now considered to be a strategic partner Level three is where we've entered into a joint venture, and that's where we basically unlock the gain share. So we transact with them on a sort of um, a usual fee-based basis initially. Uh, then we add a little bit more value at level two, and level three is kind of the pinnacle where we've effectively moved the whole model to a gain share, where there's a significant rebate back to, back to the client. That's usually in year three, the rebate goes up in year, sorry, in year two. The rebate goes up in year three. And the option I give them, Mark, is, and if you then want to take all of that in-house lock, stock and barrel and turn us off, feel free. Feel free. Uh, and that, again, is, you know, is, a, a, is uh, authentic and it's available to them. But no one's ever done that because actually it works because what they do is they manufacture things. What they do is deliver a service. And what they've realized is, they never really wanted to bring their recruitment in-house. It was more of a reaction and a response to the fact that they were just generally dissatisfied with uh, the experience. So it's a kind of hybrid, if you like. Amazing. I love that. Can I, could you explain the word gain share? Because no, I don't know that term. All right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a commercial term. So that's the case of, well, look, currently, they get, let, let's say that what they gain the upside, uh, the, the value is uh, all of those fees that are going out you know, to individual agencies or an agency, whatever it might be. So we'll run this little P&L. So we're still going to post all the placements that we make. We're still going to post that as a sale. Yeah, uh, but it's a sale that's being effectively affected by the internal team. So let's put that number back up there. So let's use the same numbers as before, so £850,000. We've agreed that we've had to make some investment to have the infrastructure and the systems and the process and the platform 
So let's say, for argument's sake, that's £20,000. And we've agreed that we want a team of three, two and a half people, a full-time recruiter, a full-time resourcer, talent acquisition specialist, and a digital marketing assistant who's effectively going to just make sure that we promote and we've turned everything up to 10 or everything up to 11, if you've seen Spinal Tap. <laughs> yeah, Spinal Tap. Nigel Tufnell, turn it up to 11. Get everything cranked up to 11. Yeah. So, and, and what I often say to clients, and this is true, you know what? You're possibly one of the best kept secrets in your sector. Because when we signpost people to your website, it says a lot about your heritage and your history and your technology and your process and your innovation and your customers and your markets and your success. But none of that is translated for the consumption of candidates. And they're not motivated, nor are they qualified to work out why you would be a great place for them to invest their careers and their futures. That's what we're really good at because we're marketeers. So going back to the game share, so let's say there's your 850. We spent, for argument's sake, 200,000 pounds running it. The 650 drops out the bottom. We're going to give you 25% of that back. So your gain there is exclusivity over candidates, more candidates, time to fill, fulfillment, right first time fill, um, raising your brand and profile, um, and all of these savings and efficiencies. Um, and then there's a step up of that, so it goes from 25. It's negotiated on a case-by-case basis, but let's say for argument's sake, in year one, there's nothing because that's you know it's paying for itself. Year two, you're going to get a 25% rebate. Year three, you're going to get 33% rebate. Year four, we'll renegotiate the relationship. And if it's something you want to take offers and take in-house and run yourself, there'll be a transfer fee because you're going to take the people, you're going to take the capability and intellectual property. If this is working for you and you want to sign up for another three years, let's do it. That's the, that's the, that's the idea. That's awesome. By the way, should uh, just a note for our international listeners, uh, you used the word high street. That simply it means main street is how it's normally referred to in, say, North America. Uh, it would be main street rather than high street. And it just simply refers to a recruitment agency or staffing business that has a shop front, um, you know, like Reed, Manpower, Deco, or, or, or whatever. Um, can I ask then what you're proposing sounds like it would only apply if they don't already, if they haven't already gone down the road of building their own internal team. Is that, the, am I understanding correctly? Or what would you, how would you approach that in a case yeah, where- Yeah, I don't think, unless that they've, they, they've tried that and it's not worked, but to be honest with you, I've not, you know, I've not come across that scenario. Often, I think if they've taken that step, politically they've taken that step and ideologically, practically, and they've taken that step, I imagine that unless it's really gone badly wrong, um, they, they wouldn't necessarily, I think they will feel that they've, that they've transitioned from being at the mercy of, um, you know, third party agencies and they've brought it in house. But I went to the in house recruitment awards a couple of years ago, but it wasn't what I would consider to be bringing a commercial, you know, highly innovative, highly energized, highly competitive. Uh, recruitment team in-house working in a dedicated way, completely aligned and embedded within that organization strategy. It just looked to me like they sort of renamed and rebrand pre-existing HR people. 
That's what it looked like to me. Yeah. So then, Steve, does that does that mean that your sort of ideal target client for this is a smaller growing company rather than uh, a PLC or? No, not necessarily. Uh, I think the okay. the the three main projects that we've got live at the minute are all significant. They're um, interestingly they're all owned and managed, although one recently IPO'd. But they were, up until very recently, all owner-managed. They're all sort of large manufacturing and or supply chain businesses. Um, but I think what was key there, and they're, they're, they're long-standing, so I think they've just got used to using agencies and, you know, whatever that looked like historically. And I think they were just ready to look at and explore something different but it wasn't too much of a leap where it was just too outlandish, too left field, too radical. And on a scale, I say to people at the beginning, look, more of the same, conventional, maybe creative, maybe innovative, maybe radical, maybe disruptive. Let's start at disruptive and work back until we find what <laughs> feels comfortable, feels like we're in the right, the, the right territory. And almost always, they say, yeah, we want to probably go somewhere between radical and innovative, depending on what the prize and the payoff is. And if you can show us a way of achieving the things you're claiming we can achieve, we're all ears. Go for it. Brilliant. That uh, Look, this has been a, such a great conversation, Steve. I'm glad we did it. I now understand your in, uh, somewhat unorthodox LinkedIn tagline, which is uh, human Swiss army knife, problem solver, acquirer and nurturer of world-class talent, therapist, wine drinker, believer in a brighter future, and most importantly, lover of dogs. So that part's self-explanatory, but the human Swiss army knife, I think I was curious about what you meant by that, but I think I understand it now. Um, you've come up with some really innovative solutions to problems in our in our industry um and uh I w it's funny i on the dogs i was looking at your website earlier i noticed that at least five of your members of staff are are canines we've got um, 15 dogs in the business so uh, <laughs> 15 dogs and i think 27 28 people so yeah our human to dog ratio is through the roof they're good for well-being, of course, Mark. But uh, and if you if you're a dog person, you get it. If you're not, you probably don't. But yeah, dogs dogs are a big I, deal. I liked the job titles. On this is on your um, cubedtalent.co.uk, and it's uh, meet the team page. I like Dora, who's in charge of security. You've got Dottie, who's head of food testing. Uh, Maisie, head of well-being. Yeah, great, uh, great job titles there. Yeah, I, I, just on that, Mark. Um, yeah. Just. You know, I think humor and just not taking yourself too seriously has been something that has served me well. I don't, again, I don't think it's something you switch on and switch off. I think it's part of your personality. But, you know, I think having points of reference that help you sort of calibrate what's important, what's really important, what's not really important. Because, and again, being non-corporate, you know, I, I think letting you – letting your personality out and engaging with yes. people through your personality, through your values, through your worldview, through who you really are, not the role you play. Um, 
I think that's really important. Maybe, you know, you wouldn't survive and prosper in corporate environments where, you know, you know, where you, you, there's a certain group think. But I think at the end of the day, in a business that's about people and thereby, de- and therefore by definition about individuals, be an individual. Be an individual. Absolutely. Just one point on that is I often, I work with a lot of solo or small recruitment business owners and there's there seems to be a tendency to want to um, have websites which give the impression that you're a massive company and there's no like pictures of the owner on there because they don't want, they're petrified of the client finding out it's really just them. I think that's a mistake. I yeah, think I do. you, people are going to buy, ultimately it's, you can't hide that for long, right? You know, and people, if they are going to do business with you, they're going to buy because of you, you are part of your personal brand is really, especially for us, one person business is also the business brand. And so you should really, you know, be an individual and put your, be approachable, put your human side across. 100%. Um, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, I've really enjoyed this. I hope we can do it again someday. No problem. Thank you very much. First for me. So um, I'm grateful. Great. One more thing before you go. I wanted to be able to give a plug to your charity. Of course, people can find you on LinkedIn and and they can follow up with cubedtalent.co.uk. Uh, so it's Stephen with a V street on LinkedIn. But um, what is the uh, Martin's House Children's Hospice? So um, Harry and Grace is uh, so the Harry and Grace's big bike ride is our sort of platform, our theme for doing a lot of our um, our sort of fundraising activity. So Harry and Grace uh, were uh, brother and uh, brother and sister. Uh, Harry died at eight years old. Grace died at 13 years old. Uh, we're very close to the parents and the family. So when I was saying earlier about having points of reference that just keep us grounded and remind us of what can happen in life and therefore what's really important and worth getting stressed about and what's not, um, Harry and Grace are my go-to point of reference and the family and how they dealt with all of that. So Martin House Children's Hospice is where Harry and Grace were both cared for and, and just as importantly, uh, were their sibling and their, their surviving sibling and their parents have been cared for. So uh, we, we, we were into the whole cycling bit, links into our sort of well-being that whole activity, sense of community, keeping fit, fresh, outdoors, all of that stuff. So that's that's our platform and, and, and our theme, the Harry and Grace's Big Bike Ride. So we've done the Yorkshire White Rose. We're doing a virtual Yorkshire to Paris. And we ask people to kind of clock their miles, whether it's leisure cycling, semi-serious or serious cycling, um, and try and uh, get some sponsorship for the miles they're doing. So that, that's kind of what it is. And, you know, we, 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 we love it. Yeah. Well, I'll definitely get uh, the link from you where people can find out more about that and how to get involved or, or donate. So, um, all right, Steve, great. Well, in- enjoy the rest of your day and uh, here's to a, a more prosperous and healthy 2021. Here, here. All right, Mark, pleasure. All right, take care. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.